0: Welcome to the Nailed It Wall. Ah!
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Nailed It Wall. We have the world's greatest critical thinking evangelist, Colin Seal uh, from Think Law has an amazing backstory. We can't wait to sit down and talk to him. It's truly an honor to have it on. Uh, in April of last year, he dropped his book, Teaching Critical Thinking to All Students. Oh, sorry, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a framework for teaching critical thinking to all students. I apologize. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Welcome to episode 50 of the Nailed It Walls. Amazing we hit episode 50, partner, really five is. zero. Yep. Uh, I'm Mr. Lane, the STEM guy.
0: And I'm Mrs. Schofield.
1: And I am Colin Seal. Happy to be here. Uh, we are pumped to have you on. Uh, your resume speaks for itself. It, just a truly amazing story. But as we start every episode, we always like to start off. How did you nail it this week? So how did you nail it this week, partner?
0: So for me, it was uh, a you know a launch into online learning this past week. You know, just finished our first week of home learning and although we did technically do that in the spring it looks very different uh going into the fall this year and a major component of that uh that's on all teachers lips is the word canvas and i would say canvas uh, was quite a lot to tackle however you know i got my assignments up the kids were able to do it i've learned a ton i mean you and i have learned a ton every day about canvas and it's no
1: google classroom
0: it's no it's no google classroom but you know it's been really remarkable to navigate it and it just shows you as an educator that just as a person that we're constantly learning. There's always opportunities to jump in, try something different and just embrace change and kind of grow with it instead of fighting that. So I would say that was a huge nail to it. Is I have survived and I actually, I wouldn't say I'm thriving in the canvas world, but I am surviving pretty well and I'm growing.
1: Day six is in the books. We're in week two.
0: Yeah.
2: Colin, how do you nail it this week? So for me, really thinking about the year 2019, where I probably traveled to 75 different places to work with teachers and school leaders across the country, um, to be in this year now, where we're working with 35 states across the country, I'm at a point where I actually believe, and this might sound weird to a lot of folks, I believe that virtual PD is better than in person. I actually believe that virtual is better, it's more customized. And today I had a chance to be the kickoff speaker for a school system in Detroit. And I just remember I had a keynote for an hour and then they had a half an hour break and like this, glued to their screen still asking questions and still wanting to keep on going. And just being able to build this platform to get people to speak really passionate about critical thinking as an issue of racial justice, as an issue of educational equity, to the point where now I still can spend time with my children, four years old, seven years old. I'm able to stay with them and hang out with them all the time. They might even join this podcast. That's how they know. So like, I I, I really feel like when it comes to this idea of piecing this together, this is, I'm I'm not a silver linings guy, like, all the time, but when I look at one of the things I never would have thought would happen from this pandemic was we've done exclusively virtual PD, we're doing incredible experiences for our partners, and it's better. Hmm. It's actually better in terms of work product outcomes, and we've got a really cool interactive flow we've been able to work out, so I'm super excited about what this means for our ability to impact more folks across across the country with this work.
1: i can't agree more like all summer on twitter teachers from all over arizona were connected like with some of the biggest biggest People like all over the country and having that personal one-on-one time and just walking away with so many things mm-hmm. from these virtual PDs. A lot of them are free. It was a truly amazing summer for PDs online. We were just talking about ISTD being canceled in Anaheim. They moved that to November. They just canceled that and they moved everything virtually online. And we're like, we're gonna get so much more out of it. We're gonna miss the experience of being there with ed- other other educators, but we're so pumped for that virtual side of it.
0: But you're right. The reach is so extended, and I think it's be it's the reach. And the other thing is, because we're forced to do it virtually, your amount of creativity and intentional effort that you put into every aspect is just like, like, it really is just such an experience because you're so intentional to make sure it's engaging. And I think when you're in person, there's things that we kind of just, uh, we just hope are going to happen organically. But with, with, you know, virtual, you have to do that intentionally. And I do think it kind of takes it to a higher level.
2: For sure,
1: for sure, very excited about that. Now, I nailed it. Every teacher is gonna have this this Zoom moment. Now, I got on last week, and I had four classes back-to-back, I got on there. Uh, my kids have Zooms in the morning, I Zoom in the afternoon, so we're on this bizarro opposite schedule. And I get on, and my son's nose looks like it exploded. He looks like he's just got like a massacre on his face, Blood. bloody nose everywhere. <laughs> oh, so I'm no. taking this class of like 25 people around, I'm like, Dobbing him up like he's rocky in the corner I'm like get back in there champ uh, my, I'm just going crazy I'm like how did this just happen and all my students are like is he okay is he okay <laughs> I'm like he's gonna be okay he gets bloody noses all the time like he's not even like crying or anything but uh, every teacher is going to have those moments over this time where something just goes awry and mm-hmm. you're just like you cannot believe that just happened the second that I just hit you know let everyone in and he just pops in and he's like he's like dad my nose is bleeding I'm like no um, so that was that was my nailed it of the week we survived uh, some some of my students might be uh, um, I don't know if they'll ever be traumatized I don't know if they'll be the same but uh, we, we survived there but uh, all great stories to kick off the pod again as I said before we are pumped to have you on tell us a little bit
2: about your backstory Colin sure sure so um it's 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 a really interesting background because I remember like, growing up in Brooklyn and uh, being the kind of first grader who was just I would say I wasn't like a bad first grader but I was like gifted and talented at being bad I was like on a roll <laughs> super focused like conscientious you worker sound at like being Rob bad. actually <laughs> I mean it takes effort man you don't just wake up like this like I really try and what, what really stuck out to me was. Uh, There was a paraprofessional who noticed that like somehow I was just kind of a little bit different. And at a time where a lot of African-American boys that were experiencing some of the behavior challenges that I did would have probably been put down some sort of path around special education or having some sort of serious behavioral disorder, um, I was put into a gifted and talented classroom. But I wasn't just put into a classroom in my school because there was no gifted and talented classroom in my neighborhood. So now I'm getting bus to another school with other kids from my part, like different parts of Brooklyn. And I remember it just always stuck me so crazy because the same exact behavior that used to get me in trouble now became a requirement.
0: Hmm. Now,
2: like me questioning my teacher it wasn't willful defiance. Now me getting up out of my seat and talking to other kids wasn't me being disrespectful. It was collaborating with my peers and between that, between the idea that only 12 kids per grade level had a chance to be a part of this transformational experience, I learned at a really early age that genius is distributed equally, but so often opportunity is not. And that always kind of stuck with me. When I look back at like being a kid that was on free and reduced lunch, being the first generation of my family in this country, because my family is all from Barbados, and even having the experience of my dad being incarcerated for a decade for selling drugs, I look back and I'm like you know, stories like mine where you become a computer science major and you you graduate with, and you teach math and you work in child welfare, you graduate top of your law school class while teaching during the day full time. And then I started this work, Think Law, where we work with schools across 35 states to teach critical thinking using legal cases and older grades and fairy tales and nursery rhymes and younger grades and there's a lot of shady characters in children's stories, by the way, just so you know. Um, <laughs> and a lot of these sort of workshops with like parents and with teachers and with school leaders around how to make critical thinking accessible as an equity issue. I step back and I'm like, I'm kind of tired of hearing stories like mine with the moral of like there goes an exception to the rule mm-hmm. when the rule itself is unjust. So what I think about, kind of like the the thing that gets me up every morning is how do we create a world where Stories like mine are boring. It's like, oh, here we go again. Here we go again. Another kid who grew up on free and reduced lunch that's able to earn advanced degrees. Next. Yeah. Not interesting. Like, how do we get to the point where every kid truly has a shot at becoming exceptional? Setting the stage for them to be excellent. Like, that's kind of where my obsession is. So it's been, it's been incredible. To say, like, this is my life. Like, this is what I do on a day to day basis, be it like writing a book or, you know, doing a workshop with teachers or preparing this really great curriculum that's super interactive and gets our kids to model a lot of these 21st century skills, Lord knows they need. Um, I just feel very much like this is the moment where critical thinking can no longer be a would be nice. It's gotta be a mandate, it's gotta be something that everyone gets access to.
1: That's something that's a big thing for us. We, we're all about teaching all the soft skills that, like, all the big tech companies, these kids graduate from college, they don't have the ability to problem solve, to persevere, uh, to be creative, um, and collaborate. So, those are all the things that are big for us at the K 8 school. So, like, we're like, when they leave there, we want them to have those skills because we want them to be prepared for those jobs as they kind of go out to the real world. Uh, So a big thing for us is like project-based learning. How can we push those kids to really achieve that all the time and and doing genius hour projects and stepping outside their comfort zone? Well, and
0: and you with the maker mentality and the uh, willingness to, you know, for Rob, his big thing is a think different. So how do you approach problems and what questions should you be generating? And, you know, I think that that's a big thing. But how much of... How much of the block for what you're trying to do is systematic and how much of it is um, like preconceived notions, would you say?
2: That's a very interesting point because when we talk about like systemic, when we talk about like kind of inherent issues, I like to flip it on folks. I like to kind of raise a point that people don't really consider as often, which is that for kids that are growing up in the struggle, they actually have a lot more access to critical thinking than folks that are growing up with a blanket of privilege. Hmm. It might not look at it like that on the surface, but the reality is, my mother could stretch a $20 bill more than any human being can possibly stretch a $20 bill. Like, when I think about the idea that I never had anything that was called a play date. A play date, was, <laughs> I had to figure that out. Right? Nobody sent appointments for me to meet with other kids. You wanna have friends? You better go and get yourself some friends, right? <laughs> so, like when we start looking at what we now call these like essential soft skills, which are really, really hard. And I think about like you gotta be able to listen to understand, speak to be understood, disagree without being disagreeable. Who's being taught how to assess credibility? Who's being taught how to optimize constraints? So when we think about like think differently. This is where I'm like, we are leaving genius on a table. You want to think differently? you want to meet young people who think differently. Go to any juvenile detention center in this country and I will promise you you will see plentiful examples of genius that we decided to leave on the table in our traditional educational context because somehow, and this is the thing, right? Like, so like you got kids and you say they're not really good at like science, but somehow like they were able to put together this whole meth lab in this little caravan thing over here, right? So like, these kids are like really poor leaders, but yet they've got this little drug ring operation that they're leading at 14, 15 years old. So like, something is missing. Yeah. So when I talk about that perception, it just comes down to like, how do we create a space where genius as it exists in our young people is seen as such by the adults? So, we hear these phrases and we probably use them sometimes not realizing the harmfulness of it. And I talk about it in a thinking like a lawyer book. I argue for the retirement of the term street smart because Mm. what is street smart? It's smart. Mm. Right. And we say like book smart. And what are we really trying to say when we say book smart, we're trying to say that somehow this kid is not functionally intelligent. Like, they might know stuff, but they can't do anything. And I'm like, well, neither is what we want, right? Neither gets us where we need to go. If all you know is in books, but you can't translate that to action in the real world. But if all you know is something that's over here, but we fail as adults to translate that into academic success, we've got some serious adult problems to worry about. So, like, I don't want to hear the demeaning term of street smart. When I hear street smart, it tells me I've got work to do in the education space to unleash that brilliance.
0: Yeah, that, I, my mind is completely blown. But so, for you, when you you know when you evangelize, when you go out into the world and you're you're trying to share your message, are you heading to uh, educators and you're trying to get them to do a paradigm shift and understand that uh, it's of the way that they're processing and seeing, or is it more focused on getting to the kids to try and help them understand that they already hold within them the ability to you know, tap into this critical thinking skill?
2: So I determined who I was going to go to by kind of looking back and thinking about the scope of the problem. So to give you kind of a little bit of more kind of clarity of the journey. So I, I taught in DC, uh, decided that like, man, there was so many problems happening outside of the classroom. So I went and get my master's in public administration and moved to Vegas. And I'm working for like, a really large child welfare agency. Because anyone knows, if you wanna go change the world, you go work for a large government bureaucracy. Like, that's what you do. <laughs> um, so quickly I realized that was clearly not the case. And the only time something ever happened is when we got sued, so, or got threatened to be sued. So that brought me back into the classroom full time. Then I started to go to, I was going to law school at night. I practiced law for a few years. And the interesting thing about practicing law is um, the second you walk out of education, Everyone wants to hear what you say about education, right? So like, now I'm on the the executive board for the Nevada STEM Coalition. I'm on the board for the Nevada Systems of Higher Education's like Diversity Committee. And and I'm having these conversations and everyone is talking about the future of work, the future of work and, and critical thinking and 21st century. And I'm like, all right, so like, so what's it look like? Where's it at? And I'm seeing, we've got this little magnet program over here. We got this kind of super small gifted and talented program over here. We've got this selective entry school over here. We got this robotics club with four kids over here. And I'm like, hmm. How is it that we're saying, on one hand, critical thinking is essential, but on the other hand, we're treating critical thinking like a luxury good?
0: Hmm.
2: Why is it only being reserved for the most elite kids at the most elite schools? Why is it that only these teachers are actually being expected to teach critical thinking. So when I started thinking about it, I said, you know what? There's some issues going on here. There's a a stacked issue around the belief gap. Like, there's not every teacher actually believes that all kids can handle rigorous material. There's the issue around, like, efficacy. Like, even if I believe it, I don't know that I can do it as a teacher. I don't know that I can take kids and get them to, to handle rigorous critical thinking assignments. And even if they had it, who's giving them the tools? Who's giving them the time? Who's giving them the resources to make this happen? So I believe that there's so much that happened in the ed tech space. And I say this as a computer science graduate that is designed around how can we replace the teacher? My idea is how can we embrace the teacher? Embrace the teacher by giving educators practical tools and strategies so that an administrator doesn't walk into the room and be like, oh, needs more rigor. Well, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? So what we did with thinking like a lawyer is we took all these different aspects of what it means to be an effective attorney, like mistake analysis. Right? So like, you know, Rob could do a problem in math, long division and do it incorrectly. Like, okay, so you can fix his mistake. That's better than just doing it. Or I can say, Hey, Rob did it incorrectly. And Christy did it incorrectly as well. Which one is more right. Hmm. And now you got to break up and be attorneys for each side. You got to figure out now we're no longer in the world of what and how to now we're rocking with why and what if. Now we're playing on a whole nother level. We're building empathy. We're building a way to communicate and discuss. We just created math for the I don't do math kid. And this is kind of what we're trying to tap into with this work. Wow. Oh,
1: I love that. <laughs> now, now, where did your passion for critical thinking come from? Was it like working for TFA? Was it working? Like, was it your education growing up? Was it your computer science background? Where, where does this passion for critical thinking come from?
2: That's an interesting question. So I look back um, and I think about my family coming from Barbados and um, growing up in Brooklyn, I remember at one point I lived in a one bedroom apartment. And at any given time, there were up to nine people living in there with us. And uh, it was the best time of my life. Like as a first grader, it was a party every day. It was the (laughs) best time of my life. And I I think that that's where it started. I, I think that that's where it's like, you know, I had an uncle who was attending Baruch College, because a lot of my family went and got their degrees as adults, like while they were working during the day. And he was the editor of the school newspaper. And like, you know, so we had to work these late nights, but he would play Scrabble with me. And for whatever reason in Barbados, they play a lot of Scrabble. And you think they take it easy on a first grader? Nope. Challenging <laughs> all these words, like talking all this mess. Like, you know, like they were not playing games. So Scrabble was a thing. And my grandmother loved to play puzzles and just people, words conversations, questions, and like, there's kind of like a mean, a meanness of Caribbean people. They're kind and nice, whatever, but they also don't like coddle you a whole lot. So you got to do a whole lot on your own. So like, I don't know, I was taking the school, bu- the city bus by myself in third grade, which is normal in New York. And this idea of like, I am able to solve my own problems for better or for worse was kind of like, the disposition that I was made in. I was grown up to be this way. But I also think that part of like growing up how we grew up, like the black barbershop was a hotbed for critical thinking Hmm. because while it took you forever to get your hair cut, like the barber would always turn up the clippers and start like making a speech to the jury of his peers about who's the best NBA player or the best NFL star or whatever. And you're like, all right, this is a cool conversation. It will be great if I got my hair cut, but whatever. But like that sort of demand for evidence and for precision, before I knew about pathos and ethos and logos, I knew about how these dudes at the barbershop would like slay you if you didn't come correct with your arguments. And I just feel like there's a because not despite narrative of my life, right? Like the way that I am today, the successes that I've experienced are not despite the struggle. It's actually because of it. Leaning into all these things that made me who I am is a big part of like why I came to be someone who cares so much about critical thinking.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. and. I mean, you know it's interesting because you know Rob and I talk a lot about our childhood, and we had to be pretty self sufficient in a lot of ways as well and you do develop the ability to figure stuff out and it it we talk constantly about how grateful we are for those struggles and that we had to solve a lot of stuff because it's made us who we are, and it also shapes us as educators and how we want to encourage that same mentality in our students where We don't want to give them the answers, and we really want to be clear that there's not just one answer. Like, most things don't just have one answer, and it's like, how many different ways can you look at this and come at it? And I just think, you know, you're right. It's, It's because of those things, and you embrace that, and it, you know, it shapes us.
2: But with that, I think that we've got to think, what does it take to get our kids to this point? Because... I don't know about you all, but I'm done with the adults. The adults, we're, we're garbage, man. We're trash. We're done. Okay? <laughs> we are, the only hope is going to be these kids. I like agree. Our kids, this next generation, they're, they're more inclusive. They're, they're more kind. They're more considerate. They're more open-minded. Like, they're, they're our only hope. And I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, it's really all about them. But I start thinking about, like, all right, what does it take to see different perspectives? It takes us starting this process way early and thinking about, like, the things we typically just throw away. We don't even think about pushing on things, which is why when we came out with our uh, early elementary edition of Think Love for pre-kindergarten to second grade, we looked at fairy tales and nursery rhymes and folk tales because there is so much drama. You take three blind mice, right? We heard three blind mice a million times. How many times have you asked, what are the hardships of being a blind mouse? What are the challenges of living your life as a mouse who does not have the ability to see. So now you're empathizing, you're seeing the world, and experiencing the world as a blind mouse experience. You're thinking about how you're more susceptible to predators, you're thinking about how it's harder for you to get access to food, and now you start thinking, well, wait a minute. Why are they running after this farmer's wife? Maybe she smells like cheese. Like, maybe it's not even about you, lady. You don't cutting off my tail. It's not even about you. Who does that? So when we start thinking through, when we start pushing on these things, it becomes a habit. It becomes the way in which our kids approach the world. But then we've got to understand we can't have critical thinkers some of the time. If you want a critical thinker and you're a parent, that means that, like, it's annoying It's annoying to have a kid who's thinking critically and questioning and wants to know why, but you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. So, like, when I look at my daughter, it could be exhausting when she wants you to justify and whatever, and she says it doesn't make sense. And last night, my son was crying for, like, 20 minutes, I was like, you know what, let me actually hear this guy out. Like, what's your argument? It's not fair that, you know, his big sister gets to, like, read with mom at night. And I always get stuck reading with you. I'm like, you know what? That isn't fair. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so, like, you're right. That That's a valid grievance. And, like, we should we should take this to the man. Like, we should, like, really put this in front of somebody and, like, make something happen. But I'm like, but we've got to create those spaces for that at home because we, we we have to create a consistent culture of critical thinking that doesn't have a disconnect between home and school spaces yeah
1: now what was the process of writing your book how long did it take you like who pushed you to that moment how How did the book come about
2: so the book so the, the book is uh thinking like a lawyer it's a framework for teaching critical thinking to all students um and like all good things in life alcohol was involved <laughs> so um <laughs> when when so like Thinking like a lawyer has been the the professional development I started doing from like maybe 2016, 2017, to really help people understand like this is kind of the mindset of the curriculum. And and the curriculum was always going to be my like, that was the only thing I wanted to do. Just curriculum. I'm going to write really dope curriculum that teachers are going to love. But then like I started realizing that teachers needed more. So it wasn't enough just for an elective teacher or an advisory teacher or a social studies teacher to do this they wanted to see more. And while we've expanded, we've got like a a really cool middle school think law math labs edition. We wanted an art teacher to use these strategies or PE teacher to use these strategies. So I started doing this a lot. And on the intersection of gifted education and equity, lied a really interesting challenge of like, one, almost every district in a country was having real issues when it comes to equitable identification of gifted and talented students. Two, even the underrepresented populations who were identified, we had a lot of issues of those kids not being successful in those programs. Three, a lot of parents of gifted children would tell you, no matter what their race was, the program was lacking. The program didn't have enough substance and there really wasn't anything actually like special or whatever to kind of get kids ready for any of this or have them really get challenged and, and pushed. So, when we started kind of converging around gifted equity, we started to get a whole lot of traction because this is a space where teachers are required to use a lot of these strategies. I don't think it should be just gifted teachers required. I think it should be across the board. But with that, I was at a conference in Texas and I was telling different stories about kind of experiences and things that I've seen, um, mostly shenanigans, mostly the kinds of things that you do when alcohol is involved. And it was an older guy by himself at the bar and I could tell he was eavesdropping. And at a certain point he turns around and he's like, I- I'm sorry. I-, I just have to say, like, you just tell these really fascinating stories. Like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm Colin Seal." And he's like, oh, you're Colin Seal? Like, I- I'm Joel McIntosh. And like eight different gifted coordinators across the state have told me that you need to be one of my authors. And, and now I understand why. Oh my gosh. So um, that's how we got in- into a book deal. And he's a... Editor over at Proof Rock Press, and in, in, based in Austin, Texas. And they're really known for their work around like gifted education and special populations. And it, it kind of it, it blew up within that space. And wh- what I was really excited about is when it debuted on Amazon, it was the number one new release in, in gifted education and special education. Oh wow! Which means that people are understanding this is not just for like this kid over here. This is for all children. This is really a practical tool to get teachers to think differently about how we engage all kids in critical thinking as an equity issue. So wow. that's the story.
0: So how has your time in the classroom as an educator shaped all of how you kind of run what you're doing now? Like what things have made the impact on you that you take with you throughout this?
2: So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what got what got me. And it wasn't being an educator, it wasn't. This book was motivated more by me being a lawyer than an educator. Hmm. And maybe briefly by my time in child welfare as well. So like, most people don't have career ADHD. Like most people that say, I wanna be a teacher, they they decide to like teach. You gotta do a lot of hoops to teach. And you're gonna be a lawyer, you're definitely gonna practice law, right? No, not me, I'm gonna do random stuff because that's what (laughs) I do. But here's what got me about working in child welfare and being a lawyer. So as a teacher, and like, I, I ask this, and I don't wanna say this in a judgmental way, but like, doesn't it sometimes feel like there's really only two types of teachers? You're either like, excellent, amazing rock star, or you're ineffective. Hmm. I've never really seen something in the, in, in the middle. I've never seen it. Like, like to, to be an effective teacher in today's classrooms, you, you have to be amazing, excellent, rock star. First one and last one out, right? Like you gotta be on point. You gotta have every single thing down pat. And I thought to myself, this is actually an insane way to build a profession. Mm. It's insane because you know, when you practice law, I'm gonna tell you something, not everybody is even good, much less average, much less rock star. please, not even close. But as a dumb first year lawyer who's getting paid triple my teacher's salary, guess what? I've got a secretary, I've got a paralegal, I got a, a, a senior attorney as an associate that's above me, and I've got a partner that's above that person. So before we put anything out into the universe, it is getting so much feedback, so much support, I am not left to drown. Mm. How in the world do you do an alternative certification program for six weeks, and they just send you out, like, all right, I guess you got it under control. <laughs> and now I start going bold at 21 years old, and I'm like, well, bold, this is not even running my family. What are we doing to our teachers, man? Mm-hmm. this makes no sense it is the most unsustainable setup imaginable so like when I started thinking about this within the context that I'm like all right like how can I make a teacher's experience feel a little bit less stressful well one I want to get kids more engaged but not engaged for engagement's sake Engaged to accelerate learning outcomes well what are they supposed to do to do that spend all day on like teachers pay teachers or googling random stuff and pulling from here and there but like If we gave them something concrete, something that was useful, practical, that didn't feel like something extra but seamlessly fit into what they were already doing, that could be a transformational impact. And if I'm being real with you, you know who this is really for? My good teachers, my rockstar teachers, my awesome teachers, because they're the ones that burn out the most. They're the ones that never get support beyond their minimal observations because why would they ever get prioritized? Same way that our kids in the classroom, right, that are at or above grade level, they'll be just fine. It's the myth. Mm -hmm. But we know that's not true. We know what happens. We see them check out. I experienced this. When I was in ninth grade, I had 80 absences. I was failing multiple classes because I just stopped caring. But it wasn't just as I stopped caring. It was because my high school didn't really do gifted. My high school didn't really do enriching. My, My high school did harder, faster, more. That was their mantra.
0: So if you could kind of construct what you think education should look like, like what would be ideal for your kids? Like what kind of scholastic environment would you want if you could put them in the dream
2: situation? So... It's really, really great question. I went to Bronx High School of Science, which graduated nine Nobel Prize winners in physics. It was a super diverse school, about 70% Asian, if I had to guess. Uh, mostly kids coming from poverty, right? Um, uh, first, a lot of first-generation kids, like myself. Um, and I remember reading The Scarlet Letter junior year. We're reading The Scarlet Letter, just like we read every other novel. Teacher kind of has all the power, leads the discussion, tells us what we're talking about that day. We go through chapter by chapter, and that's just what we do. I have a friend that goes to Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, and my mom has me go visit him. I go on a Thursday night, I'm hanging out with him Friday, and I'm going to classes with him on Friday. Guess what? They're also reading a Scarlet Letter. I go into his classroom. First question, where's the teacher? The teacher's right there. Where? Nobody's even standing up. Oh, the teacher sits with us at our round table. I'm like, oh, that's really weird. That's the weirdest thing I ever seen. So now there's 13 kids and I'm sitting there on my little fancy blazer and we're having this conversation and there's nothing on the board. There's no like do now, there's no like prompt. We are having a discussion about this text. And I remember going back and forth and making these connections between *The Scarlet Letter and the Salem witch trials and the the McCarty era, like red uh, uh, communist hearings and I'm on fire in this classroom. I am on fire and I'm like, huh. Who goes to DFL Academy? The sons of US senators, the sons of hedge fund managers on Wall Street, the, the, the sons of like uh, uh, Saudi princes and all sorts of like international multimillionaires, billionaires, gajillionaires, whatever you wanna call it. And they are learning a type of education here that's gonna allow them to lead and break stuff. That's what they're learning. You know what I'm learning at the Bronx High School of Science? How to get a good job with them. Mm -hmm. That's the difference. So how do we give our kids a kind of education that's not gonna just teach them how to navigate the system, but how to question the system, how to dismantle the system and build something different. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that that's not where we are. Yeah.
1: Now now with the recent events of, of 2020, how how have you guys grown through this whole COVID thing and the Black Lives Matter and uh, I feel like the equity education has just been all over Twitter. Twitter it's just been brought to the forefront. Now how have you guys been able to grow and uh, expand your brand?
2: So so um, we, we 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 decided. To say that, like, equity is a priority, we release a statement of commitment to equity. We've actually formed a committee of people to talk about their commitment to equity. And what we do in this committee is we all talk about how committed we are to our commitment to equity. We make various different commitments and we promise to keep on committing to being committed to equity over the long haul, which is really what most school boards are doing across the country, right? Which is having a lot of talk. We're saying the word equity so often that at some point it's going to happen because we said it so many times. And what we try to push is to recognize equity doesn't mean anything if it doesn't mean something to a teacher on a Tuesday morning in October. So, like, how do we make this actionable at the classroom level has been where we've really been able to kind of come together with something that's called the education equity equation for a very long time. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. This is kind of a product of kind of growing up where education was my ticket to transcending intergenerational poverty. Like I almost to a fault was obsessed with like, I need to get these kids prepared, over prepared, unquestionable level of credentials. That's my job. And I remember like when I taught in Vegas, I taught eighth graders, like 74 percent of my kids are proficient in math. And I was like not happy. I was angry. I was throwing stuff. But what do you mean, seventy-four percent? What about the other twenty-six? It never would occur to me that even in the most affluent suburbs, they were barely cracking sixty, right? But I'm like, okay. The reality is, though, it can't be just academic success because I can't just teach my kids how to play the game. They need the tools, the resources, the critical thinking to be able to slay the game. What does that mean? It means that we have to give them all the tools they need for a disruptive ability to navigate and work through the system where they can just look at things differently. With the, winning doesn't mean they got a good job. Jamie Cassip, I actually wrote a really great article. Uh, he's here in Phoenix. I had a chance to uh, interview him for Forbes. And we were talking, he's like, you know, I get this question all the time. You know, he's no longer at Google, but he would be asked like, how do I get a job at Google? And he said, you know what, don't. Make your own damn Google. Like, what is stopping you? Why have we set up a generation of brilliant kids who think they've made it because they got a job somewhere? There's nothing wrong with having a great job. Don't get me wrong. Like I want six figures all day, right? But there's more to it than that. And we don't teach that. And even when it comes to merit, I don't know about you all, but I didn't have an Aunt Becky. I didn't have a Felicity Hoffman that was gonna like lie and say that I was on a crew team. There was not no damn crew team anyway in the Bronx. So like when you start looking at this and you start realizing like, man, like, why do we act like hard work is going to get our kids exactly there? Why don't we talk about networking? Why don't we talk about like, how to tell your story in a persuasive way? When I was number one in my law school class, I was on the law journal. I had this impressive resume. I was super well connected in Las Vegas. I had 13 interviews for law jobs at top firms. I only got one job offer. And the job offer wasn't even because of an interview. It was because I knew another attorney at the firm from a different office and put in a good word for me. So, Are we missing the hidden curriculum? And if not, maybe it's time to stop keeping it hidden and start teaching these things that go beyond mere achievement. Not to say we're ever going to compromise academic success, but we have to dig a little bit deeper. Because you know who has to fight for racial justice? Every single educator. You know who else? Every single child. You know who else? Every single parent in our community. It has to be all hands on deck. So our work is working with parents, working with kids, working with, teachers through their curriculum and through their own sort of understanding of what it means to not just not be racist, but to further anti-racist practices in a way that translates directly to their day-to-day classroom activities.
1: Now, as we see this increase in critical thinking and industry, even when you talk about Google, like Google no longer like, you know, puts people with a master's above there. They're looking more of these industry credentials, certifications. Where do you see the future of education going? You have a four and seven-year-old. Do you see as these as critical thinking is increased uh, within our schools? Do you see like more and more students shifting away from that college mentality, like I need to go to college to get this certain degree, or do you see this critical thinking uh, sparking in schools where they're just going to go right into industry
2: because they have these skills right away? So, so I I have a very very. Um, It's not very popular in 2020 when it comes to to my view around this, but my view isn't informed by my opinion so much as it is actual data. When you look at, like, Black folks, when you look at women, when you look at uh, Latinx folks, and when you look at Asians in particular, when you look at their actual salaries, college degree versus not having a college degree, it's night and day. Granted, I know that there are a lot of jobs where you can get a really good job, like, off the bat, um, with a high school degree with special credentials and whatever, or two year certificates, all good, right? But still, it literally still pays to go to college. And if you look at the numbers, you can't really deny that. And we, here's the thing that I want to make sure we talk about. If I'm going to go from my high school in my neighborhood where it's kind of a struggle, right? But, but I get a good job at this place. I'm, it's cool. I get this good job, but this other kid over here is going to college And in college, you're taking this wide variety of different classes and courses. And like, granted, they might graduate from college and not know how to do a damn thing, right? But you're learning how to learn. You're learning how to interact. You're building networks. You're leveraging social capital in different sorts of ways. And to me, I think it's so important that if we are going to talk about having separate tracks, one, it's a true choice. It's got to be a true choice, right? It can't be that these kids over here have got this vocational track and these kids over here are the ones that are headed to college that's gonna kind of perpetuate inequities I also don't think that college or bust makes a whole lot of sense either right but like if it's a true choice where every kid is graduating in 12th grade where they have the true option to go either way and even think about this nugget of like well maybe I can go work and then they'll pay for my college and I don't graduate from college debt free and I got a job the whole time that's winning right so like we can definitely broaden the conversation, but for folks that have been kind of systemically impacted by the injustices in our world, like I can never sit here with a straight face and say like, yeah, college isn't for everyone, but it's for me though. And for my kids, they're definitely going to college, but it's not for everyone, (laughs) right? So like, I have to have some like, uh, some uh, intellectual honesty and like, just be like, you know, honest about like how I feel about that. But, um especially even this, right? I'm here working from home. I think the number is 52% of people with college degrees right now are able to work from home, whereas like 14% of people with high school degrees are able to work from home. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're a doctor or a nurse, like you can't work from home, but like the ability to even say like, I can protect myself a little bit more because I don't have to do the kind of work that typically you have to do when you have a high school degree, which most of the time is ask you to go out and like be places and do things. I just, I just have to really beat the drum that like college is a game changer for so many of us. We got to figure out better ways to pay for college and get college funded, and not have it be something that becomes this burden for the rest of your life. But like, it's an important thing to talk about going to college. Still,
1: I love it. I mean, I love the the data that you just dropped there, backing all that up. Uh, a lot of times, people think that's the easy route, like just go right into industry. But when you like talk about the facts and even like what we're in right now this pandemic and how many people are able to protect themselves and work from home truly amazing now you talk about having this career at adhd now is this like your passion project now or do you see something like going beyond further how long is this the longest stint of a job that you've had (laughs) like you know like what's next for you so you joke,
2: you joke. It is the <laughs> it, it really is. It's my fifth year doing things long. And it's interesting, we talk about career ADHD. I was identified gifted at seven years old. I was diagnosed with ADHD at 37 years old. So when you look at like a lot of the challenges I had in my career uh, or growing up in school, a lot of it was just because I just thought differently. A lot of it was never that I was really lazy or didn't care, but like something was just hard for me to do and figure out. So I always think to myself, why don't we talk more about entrepreneurship or like giving kids a chance to figure out like how to start their own things because it's a lot less stressful when you're the boss and you can like hire people to do the things that you can't do all that well. So in terms of our impact, I think the thing that keeps me moving with think law is like, you know, when I first started, it was a curriculum. Then it was the curriculum and the PD now it's curriculum and it's the book. And you know, I, I, I had a podcast for 13 episodes and I was like, yeah, I think I'm overdoing podcasts. It's cool, but it's just not me. I write go on other people's podcasts. Um, and then, you know, That's I start cool. writing. I start blogging. I write for Forbes. I wrote a piece Utopia, um, And things just change. And then people push you. Like, I get pushed by our partners. So um, we only started leaning in a lot more to our identity around racial justice when uh, a school leader was like, Colin, like, a lot of these people talk about things like implicit bias with, like, no connection to what it means in the classroom. I feel like the work that you've been doing is all about this, but like, it's actually tangible and has real frameworks that I can apply day to day. And I'm like, all right, like, I guess this is what we're gonna push into. And I just feel like there's something about the magnitude of what we're trying to do. And when I say the magnitude, I wanna give you a number. The number is 29,001, 29,001. And that number matters because there are 58,000 Title I schools in this country. Okay, those are high poverty title one schools in this country, 58,000. If we could get in a 29,000 in one of these schools, if we can introduce critical thinking as a systemic aspect of how they do their school, that means that poverty would no longer be a barrier to critical thinking. That means that it's more likely than not that kids are going to school in communities where they're economically struggling and still having access to the tools they need to break the stuff that needs to be broken that to me is justice. And as long as that 29,000 and one isn't reached, I'm like ready to go. I'm fired up all day, every day and ready to do this.
1: I'm ready to run through a wall. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I don't care if it's cinder blocks, <laughs> if it's paper, it's like, uh, I'm ready, I'm on board. I, I, I love that. I you have know? to
0: ask you though, because when before we started recording, you were asking us kind of uh, to give you a rundown of our listeners and we do have a lot of parents. so. As a parent, what are some things that you intentionally do with your kids at home? Because yes, you send them off with educators and they're, you know, they're being schooled by different people. But as parents, what are some things that you think are valuable to be doing to kind of incorporate this kind of learning and, you know, approach for them?
2: So, so I'll tell you this, right? Um, I talk about this in a book. And there's really two 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 things. One, we gotta help without being too helpful, okay? Like, we've gotta help without being too helpful. When, whenever I see, like, a 10-year-old with no, like, you know, sort of fine motor skills issues, just like, hey, is somebody gonna cut up my pancakes? I'm like, no, nobody's gonna cut up your pancakes because they are pancakes, okay? Like, you're gonna figure the situation out because I'm just not about that life. I'm not gonna sit here and cut your pancakes. So, like, when, when I start looking at, like, this idea, like, How do we make our kids more comfortable with productive struggle at home? And how do we put our egos aside and realize that it's not your job to take away your kid's chance to experience the victory of solving a problem on his or her own? And like, furthermore, there's a really other important piece where we look at our world today and we can say, without a doubt, we have a crisis of anti-intellectualism. Without a doubt. But that's not by accident. We've come to a place where it's perfectly normal for our public intellectuals to be straight out mean, jerks. We almost expect it, we almost respect it. We almost train them to be that way because they've always been that way at every single level in schooling, at every single workplace you've been in, that's who they are. So what I try to do is say, maybe there's a different way to look at it because it can't just be about critical thinking. It's gotta be a purpose as to why we are critical thinking. We gotta be critical thinking towards a world that's actually better gooder i think about my daughter my daughter is seven years old one day i'm doing dishes and i'm like hey rose pass me this cup she's like dad like there's no cup and i'm like seriously there's a cup right there can you please pass me the cup i gotta wash it out she's like "Dad, there's no cup i see a glass though listen to me i go so fast turn off my sink i get all on her face listen you are not gonna be one of those kids i'm not gonna have it i'm not gonna have you be those kids who knows exactly what i'm talking about you find one minor technicality, and you use it against it to make me feel like an idiot. You do stuff like that, you're not going to have no friends. And I say that, and it sounds real dramatic and extreme, but at what point, this is actually our newest t-shirt, right? <laughs> like, at what point do we say to our kids that doing right is more important than being right? Doing right is more important than being right. How many people do you know that need to have that lesson? When we start talking about the letter from a Birmingham jail, we look at the memory of John Lewis who just passed, like good trouble. What does good trouble mean? It means that doing right is more important than being right. If we don't teach that lesson to our kids, none of this makes any sense.
1: Now, it's uh, such a true statement, truest everything you've said. I mean, oh I, I, I just want to hang out with you and Jamie Gassup, like I two know. of my favorite people. <laughs> like, I'm just so pumped up. I can't imagine what that what that think tank was. Like, my mind's just exploding about it you. It
2: was getting- a three hour conversation. I was just canceling meetings up right there. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm having this talk. Oh, he's, he's amazing. Just-
1: amazing. Yeah, I love, amazing. I love his approach to everything there. Now, how does Think Law like incorporate the SEL education side of everything? Like, everything's talking about these kids and and their feelings how we can tap into that how does think law kind of you know work with uh the critical thinking but also the SEL side of everything
2: all right let me ask you a question can you define something for me i want you to define something for me okay milk what's milk
1: it's a liquid that comes from a cow
2: is it <laughs> <laughs> sound like a plant from the dairy industry <laughs> Right? Because uh, you go, go to the supermarket, we'll, we'll you, you you see almond milk, you see goat, uh, uh, soy milk. There's even quinoa milk. I'm like quinoa, y'all doing too much. No, no, nobody asked for quinoa milk. What are you even doing on this shelf, right? <laughs> oat so, milk, and I was blown oat away. Milk? Oat milk is a new thing. So so now so now we're looking at milk, right? And we realize that. You know, there's all this milk and dairy farmers are losing money. And what do you do when you lose money and you're a powerful industry in this country? If you're losing the game, you try to change the rules. So they try to get the FDA to change these rules and Congress to change these stuff up. So now I got my kids and they're figuring out, like, all right, well, what's milk? Okay, so, but to help them get there, one of the things we talk about in the Think Law, Thinking Like a Lawyer book and in our curriculum is like, let me help you get to a process of understanding somebody else's argument by preparing arguments in advance and allowing you to counter it using the language of the argument, right? So if I say, Hey, you know what? Like you can't milk a soybean. You can't milk an oat you milk a cow. Okay. So like that's an argument for why only milk from a mammal should be milk. So now if you have to counter that, what would you say? using my argument against me, like using the actual like things that I said to give you an argument. Schofield. No, don't even Schofield. <laughs> this is your question. <laughs> you know, it it
1: just goes back to, uh, to infinity beyond, you know? So it's like, it just kind of opens up that the possibilities of, of, I don't know, just like, I feel like there's like a Stephen Hawkins thing where we're talking about milk. I, I don't even know well, where we're going. kids
2: sitting here, they're like, well, like, like you don't milk. That's true. Like you don't milk. Uh, an almond and you don't milk a soybean but like we're not talking about milk the verb anyway we're talking about milk the noun so milk the noun milk is milk if it looks like a milk it talks like a milk it's a milk so now i'm talking about parts of speech and i'm using that and it's forcing me to think about this at a different sort of level right we start realizing oh, okay well on the other hand like you can pour milk on cereal you can use almond milk and cake whatever you like yeah you could also pour orange juice on cereal it's gross and it's not called milk so like if you want to be milk so bad, then go get a cow and like make milk. So we start thinking about this, and we're like, all right, if we could teach our kids how to like look at different arguments from different perspectives, what are we doing? We're building empathy. There's a district, Gila Bend, which is right here in Maricopa County, one of the southernmost points of Aragona County, close to uh, the border there. Um, they were having a massive bullying issue, and they adopted Think Law as a strategy to help to change the attitudes around bullying because. A lot of studies that I looked at, there's one real big study out of Harvard, looked at 20,000 kids. What they found was when they taught more critical thinking that had to do with empathy, what they found was it wasn't just that there was less bullying, because kids are going to be bullies, but bullying was was less likely to go unaddressed. So other kids would speak up for somebody who was experiencing bullying, which had a net effect of just kind of changing the culture around bullying. So... We have a lot of people using think law and advisory programming because you know what doesn't work? Okay, kids, it's social emotional learning time because that's ridiculous. It really is. It's got to be embedded in a way that actually makes sense to kids. And you know what makes sense to kids? Unfairness. Injustice. Milk. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Hashtag truth. Like,
0: uh, <laughs> I'm gonna think of you tomorrow morning when I pour my coffee with my almond milk, and I will come back to this moment. I'm telling you,
1: man. It's. Uh, I, I. I don't feel like. Uh, is there anything else you want to cover here? Oh gosh, I feel like uh, we've knocked it out of the park. Whew. I just love like where where you've just hopped in the driver's seat and you've taken us.
0: I mean, it's incredible. I mean, your passion, your vision. Um, it really is your incredible.
1: story. Yeah. Your, your story is just mind-boggling. I, I just love the career ADHD.
2: <laughs> so one of the things that I, I guess I guess on that note, and I think this is a really good place to kind of um, kind of end the conversation. When I go across the country and I talk to educators in the room of two hundred people, five hundred people, I often ask the question um, where I ask like, "Hey, so like when you look at." your experience as a child going through school. Like how many of you would say that more or less like you were like a pretty good student? Like you did your homework, you got pretty good grades, like you didn't really get in like a lot of trouble in school. You like did your thing and like most of the time it's like 80, 90%. And I sometimes look and I'm like, yeah, I think y'all are part of the problem. I think y'all are part of the problem. I think that there's a reason that educators get lower insurance rates. I think that, like, when it comes to this idea around, like, compliance and, like, doing the thing to be done, having clarity, right? Like, if you have been at a staff meeting recently, what do they want? They want clarity. They want answers. And it's just like, but they can't deal with the funk. They can't deal as much with that gray. We're like, oh, we've got to figure it out. This is going to be a slim plan. And as we learn more, we're going like, to no, 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 no. I need to know. What exactly? But I'm like, oh, but that's not the world we're preparing our kids for. So if our kids need to be in a space where they need to learn how to learn, how to be agile, how to be flexible, adaptable, are we even modeling that at all? When I look at the woman who sat diagonal for me when I I sat for the bar, before the bar exam, she shared it was her 13th time taking a bar. I'm like, yo, don't touch my paper, lady. You go over there. I don't want none of that juju over here. You stay over there. But she passed. You know what they call her? Counselor. Mm-hmm. Esquire. Because she passed. And over here, we're talking about, well, preparing you for the real world. What real world? In the real world? You know what? If we're in a case and things are getting real busy, I call the judge. I'm like, hey, we need like a two-week extension for this hearing. Okay. Call the other side. They agree to it. Okay. It's good. People agree. They give you extensions because they understand that we are human beings. So, mm-hmm. like if we really want to think about what it takes to make sure that our kids are ready for this, we got to embrace more funk ourselves. We got to be more comfortable in uncertainty ourselves. You know what I love to see? And it's strange. It's really strange sometimes, but like some of the most like badass, innovative educators that I know that are always gung-ho to try the latest technology should have already retired 10 years ago. I'm like, you 75, giving a near-pod training? How'd that make any sense? <laughs> I'm not going to be ageist. I'm not doing age discrimination, but I'm just like, to me, that shows me that like, the, 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 the mindset matters more than anything. Because you got 33-year-olds that are like, I, I, I can't do this. Another new system? We're flipping the grid now? I am flipping the grid? What are you even talking about? Flipping? I don't want to flip the grid. But I'm like, all right, like, all right. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. And I just, I just think that's my message to a lot of educators. I understand, like, It's going to be all right. A lot of our kids, their whole lives is uncertainty. Every day, they kind of think on their toes to figure out what's going to come next. You're doing this within a space where it's far less complicated. You have to believe in your ability to do it. Because if you don't believe in your ability to do it, it's not going to happen. And we need it to happen.
1: Man, I love it. I love it, my man, Colin. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on, taking the time to to drop some knowledge. I know our listeners, I hope administrators are listening, uh, to the power of critical thinking in schools, aligned with SEL, of being a good person. Uh, this is the future. Uh, we wish you all the best, and uh, we look forward to to following you and and following. Just, man, just like what you're going to do next. I mean, I hope you do this for a long time. I, I think you're doing some great work, uh, but congratulations on the book, the success it's had right out of the gates.
0: Yeah, I heard you live locally. So once mine arrives from Amazon, I will like to set up a time that we could just, you know, do a little
2: bit. Sounds, Sounds good. Sounds <laughs>
0: good. Sounds good. It's just really, really inspiring. It really is. And it just shows us what a community we are. Um, we all owe this to our kids, you know, all of us. And I think that that's the thing is it is a community effort. And so it's just, you know, I feel grateful that you're part of this fight.
1: As we say every episode, people, if you can be anything in the world, be kind. Now, if you liked hearing stories about milk, uh, career ADHD, what it takes to be a good person, uh, people can't deal with the funk, someone taking the bar for the 13th time, maybe looking on Colin's paper and that's why she passed, (laughs) make sure you hit the subscribe button. Every Tuesday, the latest episode of The Nailed It Wall will be downloaded to your phone. And if you're on Twitter, make sure you find us. You can find me at Mr. Lane the Stem Guy.
2: And me at a positive proton.
1: Social media you want to plug, Colin.
2: Yeah, at Colin E. Seal on Twitter, at Colin Seal on Instagram. My little brother is also Colin Seal, so make sure you get that middle initial right. Colin E. Seal on Twitter, Colin Seal on Instagram. And follow us at think law us on either platform.